0: Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The Mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording.
1: Welcome to the Building a Family series. This episode is in continuation of the series where we learn about building a family from many angles, including halacha, sikhais, and maimar. We encourage you to follow the rabbinic guidance and listen to all of the previous episodes first as context for this one. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Scott Chernoff as he gives us a medical perspective on this topic. Next week, we will hear from Rabbi Kasimov as a follow-up to this discussion. All phone numbers mentioned in the episode can be found in the show notes below.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome. We are continuing our Building a Family series in our podcast. I want to give as an introduction that as we've gone through the different Hushkafic elements in building a family, this conversation with Dr. Trudnoff is from a medical perspective. It is for informational purposes only. Of course, it is assumed um, that at this point in the conversation, we have already spoken to our mashpia. We have already spoken to our Rub about using contraception at this point. And now we are wanting to know information in order for us to be able to make the best decision for ourselves. Perhaps when we go to our medical provider, um, we aren't able to have this hour-long conversation dissecting every single type of method that's helpful to come in with information to then be able to isolate with our provider what is the best for us. So in no way is this conversation a personal recommendation of one type over another. Uh, We are fortunate to have with us today Dr. Scott Chudnoff who is the head of obstetrics and gynecology at Maimonides Medical Center. We've had a few series with him recently on health and wellness, and we thank Dr. Chudnoff for being here today. Um, He has also decades of experience beforehand in supporting women, in Building a Family, and we thank you for being here today. So, Dr. Chonoff, if you can tell us a little bit more about your background and what brought you here today to to speak with us about contraception.
2: Hi, and it really is a pleasure to be able to talk to everybody today um, about contraception. In general, I I can tell you that uh, for me coming to Brooklyn and coming to Maimonides uh, in particular was an opportunity for me to be able to be more close to the, to the larger firm community that exists inside the United States, probably the largest uh, firm community inside the United States, and that opportunity for us to be able to better serve uh, the community with a variety of different resources. Uh, and in my coming to Maimonides, uh, part of that process has been for us to uh, develop and to create programs uh, that are unique and are needed by people Uh, as it pertains to the various different concerns someone may have. One of the examples of what we're going to be talking about today relates to contraception. And we actually have a special program here at Maimonides specifically dedicated towards complex contraception and dealing with complex contraceptive issues. Uh, And I I encourage people to avail themselves of it, because while every OBGYN is typically capable of dealing with Uh, recommendations for contraception. There are constantly things that are changing and there are many different nuances that apply to individuals based on what's going on in their own personal life. And having an expert who specializes specifically in complex contraception can very frequently be helpful for those individuals. I'll give the phone number here now if anybody would need it. It's 718-283-8959. That's 718-283-8959. That's uh, our early pregnancy assessment center and complex contraceptive center. Um, And uh, we also have another phone number that might be helpful too. It's 718-283-9044. And that's the number to the Women's Health Institute, which is where people would be able to get in contact with myself um, or some of the other experts which are located over there uh, if need be. Uh, my own personal history is, uh, as you've mentioned, I've been in OBGYN gyn now uh, for for 24 years, uh, and uh, I've been dealing with a variety of different areas of, of um, complex issues relating to gynecologic issues for women. Uh, my personal training is that I am subspecialized in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, and then while I have done my share of deliveries, I've done over 2,000 uh, deliveries myself, um, but, uh, my area of primary specialty at this point in my career is related specifically to gynecologic surgery and complex gynecologic problems. Uh, and so, uh, with that, I, um, am, am happy that we're able to have this opportunity. And I appreciate, uh, the, the efforts by mikvah.org to really help in expanding the knowledge as it pertains uh, to these issues. Um, frequently there's a lot of misinformation, um, which is, uh, propagated just because of the fact that there's not always good enough accurate information being uh, dispersed. And so uh, I appreciate the efforts and energy that mikvah.org has been doing in being able to try to create programs like this in order to help educate the community.
3: And now I would like to introduce Rabbi Kasimov, well-known Rav of the In Crown Heights, Haskins on Tars Meshpacha and the Rav and the Beis Haya under the Basin of Crown Heights. Uh, I would like Rabbi Kasimov to address us, please, before the doctor begins his presentation.
4: So, Doctor Chednov is going to uh, is about to give a presentation on a wonderful presentation on all the different methods of birth control. It is very, very important to note, and as the doctor himself is going to be stressing this point, that every single thing in the following presentation is only for informational purposes for somebody who has already discussed and received the hat from the Rav, just to make it easier in order to navigate what is the right choice for them. Every single method of birth control comes with its own set of Shilas, as you will see in future presentations. This is just to help you, to give you clarity in what you're going to get yourself into. However, as just mentioned, it is very crucial for everyone to always know and remember this is not something that can be taken into the hands of one oneself this is something that always requires the consultation of a rav before and during the process
3: and i also want to mention Rebecca Simov another important point that we made a decision um, that we will that after dr chudnov discusses the medical aspects of the different forms of birth control and then there's the follow up sheer presentation with rebecca Simov that goes through every method of birth control and what the shayles are to know what to bring up with your Rav or the halachas that come up with it, followed by Q&A, uh, we chose not to get into the practical tips, women to women, or the practical application of all these methods—how you know, everyday women get to make it more user-friendly. Because we want to underscore the importance of every individual must consult with their rav, with their doctor, some or the medical provider. Sometimes the medical provider will provide more uh, user-friendly tips. Sometimes they won't. A, a woman could turn to uh, mikvah.org, experienced college teacher who could go through with that, if she so desires or needs. But we will leave out that information for in our um, in our public shiorim. So, without further ado, we're going to now hear Doctor Chudnov's presentation, and our following presentation will be the Rav um, discussing all these details.
2: Okay, and so we're going to talk a little bit about understanding contraception, and I'm not going to focus on the halakhic aspects because I'm just a simple doctor, uh, and I'm here to to talk about the medical aspects. Um, I know that, uh, that the Rabunam are the ones who are going to be the people for whom you will go to for, for expert advice in relation to that. Um, but I will make one point before I start, which is I encourage that if there are questions or concerns to open up the conversation with your physician and your Rav. Because a lot of times things can get lost in translation, and I can tell you the majority of physicians would be very happy to include the rub within the conversation, especially when there are more complex issues at play. Many times the, the physicians don't fully appreciate the social aspects and the religious aspects of what goes on. Uh, with many of the contraceptive issues uh, and having the rub as part of the conversation can be very helpful in many circumstances. So I encourage people to avail themselves of that. Um, so I am going to talk a little bit about reproduction because I think it's important to understand that in order to understand what is contraception. Uh, and then I'd like to um, ultimately go over what are the different contraceptive options which are available. So let's talk a little bit about basic human reproduction. And basic human reproduction, basically, how is a baby formed? A baby is formed by a sperm and, a, uh, and a, an egg getting together. And the sperm comes from the testes, which are located in the scrotum, and comes and passes out through the penis. The reason why this is important to understand is because some of the contraceptive methods that we will discuss are specifically related to the anatomy and how things work. In regards to the female anatomy, uh, an egg is produced from the ovary, which then gets put into the fallopian tube. uh, And then from the fallopian tube, um, that egg would get fertilized and then put into the uterus, where if it is a normal pregnancy, um, that pregnancy will then subsequently grow until it is time for delivery. Now, there's a lot of things that go on as it pertains to. Um, that process. And it is an extremely complex coordinated event that takes place uh, in the woman and in the man, where there is a coordination of the hormones, where there is estrogen and progesterone and a variety of other signals that go on, both on the level of the ovary, the uterus, and even all the way up to the brain and to many of the other glands within the body. And The reason why it's important to appreciate this is because the different contraceptive methods will function at different levels, Um, and understanding those levels can also help us start to understand where some of the complications or concerns may come in, as well as understanding why certain methods may or may not be better for one individual over another individual. And so what happens, you can see over here in this picture that the egg is released Um, from the, uh, from the ovary. And as the egg is released from the ovary, what happens is the, the um, egg comes out of the ovary. And as the egg comes out of the ovary in this mid portion over here by the fallopian tube is where the sperm, which will come in through the vagina and then swim all the way up in the uterus into the fallopian tube. And it will meet over here in the fallopian tube. And then, what subsequently happens is this fertilized egg will start to divide. You can see the pictures on the top. That is actual photographs of a dividing egg. Um, As it's turning into what's known as a blastocyst, which is the name of what that of what it looks like after it starts to divide. And then eventually what will happen is somewhere around day eight or nine after fertilization has occurred, um, that egg will then implant in the side of the uterus, the side of the uterus is known as the endometrium. And I could show you back over here that this lining of the uterus is the endometrium. The endometrium is also the same place in where somebody gets their menstrual cycle from, where the period is, comes from. And the period comes only in a circumstance if a pregnancy did not take place. And so what happens is the egg will implant in the side there, and assuming everything is normal, that is where it will stay and will continue to grow inside the uterus Uh, Until the until it is time for delivery. But what's important to understand is what is contraception. What does it mean when we're talking about birth control? What does it mean when we're talking about birth control? What are we talking about when we're talking about contraception? And what it is is first important for us to understand what it is not. Contraception is not an abortion. Contraceptive methods do not destroy a pregnancy. That is not contraception. Contraception is prevention of the actual pregnancy from occurring in the first place. It is not destruction or destroying of a pregnancy. And it's important for people to understand that because a lot of times people are confused and they think that contraception is actually killing a pregnancy or an early pregnancy. And that is completely not the case. The the contraceptive methods are designed to in some way, shape or form prevent the egg and the sperm from meeting, attaching and growing. That's the primary objective of contraception. And so when we talk about the different levels of different types of contraception, there are different methods that work in different areas. There are things that work, what we call gonads. Gonads are the ovaries and the testes. So there are certain methods which work specifically on the ovaries and the testes to impact the production of eggs. Um, There are things that happen before we even get to the production of eggs. Remember, if I showed you earlier, There's a whole slew of events that take place that impact the ovary, but these things happen all the way up in the brain and in the pituitary gland. So there are contraceptive methods which could impact up here. There are contraceptive methods which impact the ovary itself. And then there are contraceptive methods which impact after the ovary, things like the cervix or the endometrium. And I apologize, I did not do a full introduction to all of the anatomy as we're talking about this. But just to give a very quick, brief overview, the uterus is where the pregnancy is held. The lining of the uterus is known as the endometrium. Attaching from the uterus to the ovary is the fallopian tube. This is the ovary over here. The ovary is where the egg is produced. The egg will pop out, and the fimbria, which are these little finger-like projections that come off of the fallopian tube, sweep the egg from the ovary into the fallopian tube in order to allow for a pregnancy to occur. And so there are anything which can interfere, the cervix is down over here, this is the opening to the vagina, and sperm are brought into the vagina and will then subsequently swim up through the cervix into the uterus and then into the fallopian tube just to, so that we all know the terms that I'm going to be referring to, because I will be referring to medical terms throughout this. I try, just so you know, I try to avoid referring to things in the halachic terms, because they can be confusing sometimes, and you will hear me uh, reference the medical terminology for things as I go along in this talk. I will occasionally use halakhic terminology, but I try to stick primarily with the medical terminology of things. So like I said, we can have different ways in which it it impacts. The other thing is that there's different types of ways in which the contraceptive method takes place. There are things that could be behavioral that change the way we act that will prevent us from getting pregnant. There are barriers physically. There is hormonal changes that we can do. There are things that could be inserted. So what are the available contraceptive options? And we're going to walk through all of the different options here. We'll go through a couple of different things. And so this way, people get a good overview of what we're talking about. So the behavioral methods um, are some of the oldest methods that exist uh, in regards to contraceptive uh, management. And they include things, any type of action or activity that would prevent the sperm from meeting the egg, from meeting the oat. So abstinence, if you're not having relations, then obviously no pregnancy can form. Um, there's the breastfeeding lactational amenorrhea method, there's fertility awareness methods, and there's coitus interruptus. So let's go through some of these behavioral methods. So abstinence, obviously, if two people are not together, then it is impossible for a pregnancy to occur. Um, the, and, it, and it is a very effective method. Um, As a matter of fact, it has almost zero failure rate, except in real world. And when we talk about failure rates of contraceptive methods, we will frequently talk about what is ideal in a perfect state. And what is reality? How do things really work in life? Um, And so in in an ideal state, abstinence is 100% effective. The likelihood of somebody conceiving without there actually being relations uh, is is essentially zero. Um, Some of our other religions may think that that can happen, but for us, it is zero. The problem is that abstinence obviously carries with it a lot of challenges and difficulties. It means that two individuals are not capable of being together. Now, obviously... um, in, in halachic Judaism, we do believe in periods of abstinence at various points within the lifespan, but if a prolonged period of abstinence obviously can create a tremendous amount of difficulty and strain, and it is frequently a reason why we don't necessarily recommend abstinence as a primary method of birth control for people who are in a, in, in a married relationship. Now, the breastfeeding which is known as the lactational amenorrhea method, um, is it a highly effective method of preventing pregnancy, especially in the first six months, assuming a couple of things. First of all, that the woman is solely breastfeeding and you have not introduced regular food into the baby's diet. Secondly, is the fact that you are not getting a period, meaning if you're breastfeeding and getting a period, then you can still get pregnant. But... Um, Now, even if you're breastfeeding and not getting a period, it is possible for you to get pregnant. However, in the first six months, if you are exclusively breastfeeding and you do not have a period, the chance of failure of this method is about one to 2%, meaning the likelihood of you conceiving and getting pregnant is is very, very low if you're doing that. Um, The way that it works is the actual hormones that are produced in the body when a baby suckles. Uh, And that produces a hormone known as prolactin, which decreases ovulation and can also prevent the egg from making it to the uterus in order to be able to implant. So it is a very effective method. Um, a lot of women rely on this method, but like I said, you have to keep in mind that you can't be giving the baby any other food and you can't, and you must not be getting a period now after six months, the effectiveness of this starts to drop off. And so therefore I generally recommend that if somebody is going past six months, relying on this solely, that somebody is utilizing an additional method as well. If pregnancy is something which really is intended to not happen at this point, um, If people are concerned, especially in the beginning as well, um, it is very reasonable to also consider using a secondary method to lactational amenorrhea method, but it is a very effective method in the beginning. Now, there's another large group of different types of things known as the fertility awareness methods. So what are fertility awareness methods? Fertility awareness methods essentially recognize that there are three primary parts to a menstrual cycle. There is an infertile phase, which exists before ovulation occurs. There's a fertile phase, which tends to be within the middle five to seven days of a menstrual cycle. And then there's another infertile phase, which exists in the post ovulation. So if you can predict reliably when fertilization is, I'm sorry, when ovulation is going to occur, then it is possible to time relationships in a way that you would avoid having relationships at a time when you are in that fertile phase and more likely to end up having a pregnancy that would occur and in a perfect world again if you were doing this if let's say you got an ultrasound every day and you were able to see and you had your blood test measured every day to see if you were ovulating or not the failure rate could be as low as two percent however in real world the failure rate actually for many fertility awareness methods is quite high it's as high as 23 percent and in some cases can be even larger than that uh, it can depend on the fertility awareness method that is being utilized. There are a variety of them, and I'll discuss them in a second. Um, but I will say that caution does need to be utilized with this. Obviously, for a religious couple, and like I said, I'm not going to get into the extensive things relating to, to uh, halachic considerations, but ultimately, when we consider that the average individual who is menstruating um, is not able to be with their partner uh, for the first, uh, you know, 12 days or so, the end when we consider then that the time that a woman would be going to mikvah would most likely fall within her fertile phase, that really creates a very small window in a typical menstrual cycle that would allow people to have access to be together. Um, so it is a consideration which is more unique within the firm population, because as we keep Hilchos Nida, that obviously creates some of the constraints relating to it. Now, within the fertility awareness methods, there is a variety of different methods which have been utilized and have been studied. There is the calendar method, which specifically is looking at days in which you anticipate that ovulation is going to occur. There's the standard day method utilizing coded beads where we have, um, imagine a chain. You can see the picture on the bottom there so that it makes it easier for people to understand and count. The cervical mucus ovulation detection method, where at the time when a woman ovulates, the mucus that comes out of the cervix will change. And some women are capable of actually determining and looking at the mucus and by understanding their discharge can recognize that they're in their ovulatory period. There's a two-day method. There's using basal body temperature method where you measure the temperature. And typically, there is a slight change in the base temperature that somebody has Um, around the time of ovulation. The post-ovulation method, the sympothermal method, which involves utilizing various different symptoms in determining whether or not somebody is ovulating. Now, remember, the key thing when we talk about fertility awareness methods is the fact that it is relying on a prediction. Now, that prediction is contingent on a variety of factors, not the least of which is the regularity to somebody's menstrual cycle. For people who have irregular menstrual cycles, fertility awareness methods can become much more challenging to utilize because we can't easily predict when ovulation is going to occur. And while there are a variety of things such like we mentioned relating to basal body temperature and being able to try to map things, the more irregular things are, any, the more someone deviates from your standard 28-day cycle. Um, the more challenging it becomes with the fertility awareness methods and being able to accurately predict uh, when uh, pregnancy is going to occur. Um, and so these are considerations that do need to be taken into account when someone is utilizing the fertility awareness methods. Um, then we have the barrier methods. So, what are the barrier methods? The barrier methods use some sort of physical, mechanical barrier to prevent the sperm from meeting the egg. And so let's put it into perspective. Basically, What it does is it creates a wall that makes it so that the sperm will never be able to meet the egg. Um, Spermicides um, are another commonly used method. Um, Now, generally, spermicides could be used in a variety of different ways. Um, They could be used by themselves, or they could be used in conjunction with another one of the barrier methods. When used by itself, the failure rate of spermicides is, is reported at somewhere between 15 to 29%. Um, so it does have a relatively high um, failure rate. The way that it works is it prevents the sperm from entering the opening to the cervix known as the os, uh, and it it reduces the mobility of the sperm. As you can see from the picture over here, sperm have a big head over here and this tail that it swims with. The way that it works, the most common uh, um, thing that's in spermicides is this uh, agent called ninoxinyl 9. And the ninoxinyl 9 prevents the tail from being able to swim fast. And that prevents the sperm from being able to make it all the way up uh, to be able to fertilize the egg. Uh, there's, it comes in a variety of different forms, creams, films, foams, gels. I think the most common one that I hear patients telling me about today are the films. Uh, I think the VCF is one of the more common brands that people will Will encounter uh, in their pharmacies. Um, What's important to keep in mind is that these films and suppositories require at least 15 minutes prior to um, putting, uh, prior to engaging in in intercourse uh, after it was put inside. So it is important to keep that in mind. Additionally, it's important to keep in mind that if someone is going to have relations more than once in a night, that it does need to be reapplied between each, uh, between each uh, episode. The diaphragm um, is essentially a uh, plastic cap that looks uh, like this, what you see over here. Uh, and the diaphragm is inserted into the vagina. And what it does is it creates a barrier uh, between the uh, outside portion of the vagina to the portion where the cervix and the uterus is located. Uh, and what that does is it does a, two different things. It creates a physical barrier uh, by this uh, this the diaphragm that's there. But also in order to use the diaphragm properly, it's important that spermicide is placed both on the inside of the diaphragm as well as on the outside of the diaphragm. Uh, a diaphragm, it is it it, it is something which uh, has a failure rate anywhere between thirteen to eighteen percent. Um, like I said, it creates both a physical and a chemical barrier because of the spermicide that's used with it. It, The advantage to it is that it could be inserted up to six hours prior, uh, to, uh, to relations. Um, but like I said, it is important that spermicide is applied. And if there's going to be more than one episode of relations that night, then it does need to be, the spermicide needs to be reapplied on the outside, um, the other thing, which is important to keep in mind, is that it does need to stay in place after relations for between six to eight hours. It also, um, the standard diaphragm does need to be fitted. Um, now there is a new diaphragm that is out there, which is a stand, which is a one size fits all diaphragm uh, that is on the market. But the standard diaphragm does require fitting. Um, The problem with the diaphragm for many women is that there's an increase in urinary tract infections, and there could be increases in cervical erosions uh, and irritations that happen inside the vagina and cervix as well. Uh, The reason why this is important is because especially when we consider concerns relating to spotting and bleeding, uh, it is a consideration that needs to be kept in mind when someone is considering the use of the diaphragm. The cervical cap essentially isn't on the market anymore. I put it on there because uh, people have, uh, people ask about it still. Cervical cap works similar to the diaphragm, but instead of the diaphragm, which is larger and is, takes up space in the vagina, the cervical cap literally goes over the cervix of the uterus itself and creates a cap over it. Similarly, it requires the use of spermicides, but like I said, it's really not on the market uh, and most uh, people are not prescribing it these days. So now let's talk about the hormonal methods. Um, And the hormonal methods, like I said, have an impact on a variety of different areas uh, in the system. Now, as opposed to the barrier methods, which physically prevent the sperm and the egg from meeting, um, the hormonal methods, for the most part, will either prevent an egg from being produced in the first place, or will also sometimes create a barrier by increasing the mucus, which is in the cervix, and creates a barrier, a natural barrier for the sperm to not be able to enter into the uterus as well. And there's a whole slew of different types of hormonal methods, as well as ways in which the hormonal methods could be given to someone. Um, there are two primary hormones that are, make up the hormonal methods. There is estrogen and progesterone. There are one, both combined estrogen and progesterone compounds. And then there are also progesterone only agents as well. Uh, And so there is a whole slew of different things that exist within the hormonal methods themselves. So let's talk a little bit about what are probably the most common ones, which are the combined estrogen and progesterone contraceptives, the standard, what when most people refer to a birth control pill, this is usually what most people are referring to. Um, And like I mentioned, the primary mechanism for how they work is that they will suppress the... Um, ovulation from occurring, which means that it prevents the ovary from producing an egg. Now, if there's no egg, there's no pregnancy. And so that works in about 90 to 95% of the time. Um, There's also, as I mentioned, the thickening of cervical mucus, which creates a barrier for the sperm to be able to get into the uterus. And then there's also decreases in tubal motility, which makes it so that the remember this is has to be a perfectly timed event the sperm and the egg have to meet at exactly the right time in order for things to work properly so if you change the speed in which things are going through it will make it so that they don't meet at the right time and pregnancy will be unlikely to occur So what are some of the advantages to to the standard combined birth control pill? Well, it can decrease the amount of menstrual blood loss and pain. Many women do experience what's known as dysmenorrhea, pain during their period. Um, It could eliminate ovulation pain. Many women will get pain mid-cycle, somewhere around day 12 to 14 of their menstrual cycle. And frequently that's related to something known as ovulatory pain. Well, if you prevent ovulation, you could prevent that pain from occurring. It can help regulate menstruation in people who don't regularly ovulate. Uh, so it is possible that if somebody um, is not getting regular periods, uh, that this will help within the regulation of that. And as a result of that, um, birth control pills have been shown to decrease the risk of development of endometrial cancer. Um, and that is something important to keep in mind as one of the major advantages that can happen particularly for women who have irregular periods, because one of the worst things that can happen is if the lining of the uterus grows out of control, it can lead to serious problems in life. It can help with changes in menstrual frequency. Um, I'm going on vacation. I don't want to get my period right then and there. It's possible to modify the timing uh, of my menstruation. Um, It has been shown to also decrease the risk of ovarian and colorectal cancers. Um, It decreases corpus luteum and hemorrhagic cysts, so some certain types of cysts by taking birth control pills can help prevent the development of those cysts. A misnomer that many people don't realize, though, is taking a birth control pill will not make a cyst that is already there go away. It can help prevent one from forming in the first place. Uh, And for many people, depending on the formulation, it can also help to decrease acne. Uh, And many times we will give it to people specifically for that purpose. So what are some of the disadvantages? Well, there could be spotting and irregularity to cycles, especially when initiating birth control pills. Um, And it's even more pronounced frequently if people were already irregular in their menstrual cycle, it is more common that in the beginning that it may take time for the birth control pill to fully take control of the cycle. And I caution people, sometimes people start to have some spotting in the beginning, and it is incredibly troublesome because, again, because of issues as it pertains to NIDA and the impact that it can have on relationships, and people want to then just continue to switch. But frequent switching from one formulation of pills to another or one method to another can actually exacerbate and make things worse. You know, I liken it to like if you're on a rowboat and if you stand up on a rowboat and it starts tipping one direction to the other, you want to quickly go this way, then quickly go this way. And what happens if you keep standing and quickly going from one side to the other? Eventually, you're going to fall into the water. What are you supposed to do if you start tipping on a rowboat? Sit down. That's the best way in order to help prevent that. And for many women, the best thing to do is you give it a little bit of time. Um, for some people, they, they find that you may miss your menstrual cycle, and certain pills are more likely to cause you to miss the cycle, and that is something which people sometimes find distressing. People sometimes want that regularity. It makes them feel good that they are getting their period. There could be decreased libido, a decrease to the sex drive. Um, the sex hormones are impacted by taking birth control pills, and it is not uncommon that people, that when they're on certain formulations of birth control pills, that it could impact their sex drive, it can also impact lubrication and arousal. There are a variety of different things that could be impacted by birth control pills. Mood changes are also something which we see with certain birth control pills, and it depends on the individual. Um, certain people will... Now, here's what I always caution people about this. Some people think automatically, people like to think I'm, I'm very sensitive to, uh, to medicine, or I'm sensitive to pills, or I'm sensitive to hormones. But there are over 120 different formulations of birth control pills and how one pill will impact somebody versus another pill can be totally different. So it's important to keep that in mind, but mood changes are a real concern that do exist with birth control pills, sometimes to the extent that people can really have serious issues and we need to take people off of the pills because of the impact on their moods. Nausea and vomiting, uh, whenever people are taking hormones, there could be GI distress. Um, These things usually are things that will go away relatively quickly if somebody does have them. Usually I recommend for people to take their pill at night if you are experiencing nausea, vomiting, usually when you go to bed. Um, You don't usually get nauseous in your sleep. Um, Headaches, breast tenderness are all things which come along with birth control pills. There is some differing opinions in the evidence as to whether there may or may not be an increased risk to breast cancer associated with birth control pills. The vast majority of the evidence shows that there is not a significant, if any, increase in relating to breast cancer for individuals taking birth control pills. Um, But I know that that is a concern that many people do have. Another major risk to birth control pills are the development of blood clots. Um, And particularly as it relates to the estrogen component. When I talk about blood clots, I'm not talking about what someone passes in their menstrual cycle. I'm talking about blood clots that develop in the body. It could be in the chest, which is known as a pulmonary embolism. It could be in the leg, which is known as a DVT, or in a variety of other places in the body. And certain women, particularly if you have predisposition to blood disorders, may be at an increased risk of these things happening. Other reasons why someone might be at an increased risk for development of these blood clots would be if somebody is morbidly obese, if they are severely overweight people who have significant high blood pressure, people who are smokers, and as I mentioned, other individuals who may have clotting disorders. Um, Some people may see liver problems Uh, Some people may see high blood pressure as a result of taking birth control pills. Those tend to be more rare events that occur. Um, But these are things that people do need to be aware of when we're talking about going on one of these pills because of the impact that it could have, especially if you have underlying medical concerns or conditions. Um, When we talk about the pill, so the pill's failure rate is actually quite low, uh, anywhere between 1% to 9%. Um, 9% is primarily because people forget to take their pill. Um, and guess what happens? If you don't take it, it doesn't work. Um, like I mentioned, there are a variety of different formulations of the pills. There's what's known as monophasic and triphasic. In a monophasic pill throughout the entire month, you take the same dose throughout the month. In triphasic pills, the dosage of the progesterone component of the pill will change each week. And so you'll see, if you look at this top picture over here, there's three different colors to these pills. That's because each week has a different formulation to the pills. Then there are low dose and ultra low dose, which pertains to the dosage of the estrogen that are located, that are in the pills. And then there's continuous pills and monthly pills. It is possible that you can take a pill so that you only get a period once every three months or even less than that. It is totally healthy and it is totally safe to do. People are always concerned. I always hear patients say to me, where's the blood going? Isn't it backing up inside me? Um, and no, it's not. What it's doing is it's preventing the blood from being formed in the first place. Um, what is important is it is important to take the pill the same time each day. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to take a pill at exactly 8.03 a.m., but it does mean that you should, if you're a morning pill person, take it in the morning. If you're an evening pill person, take it in the evening. You know, the in general, when it comes to the to the pills, we can do things as it pertains to to cycle control, depending on when someone is. Let's say somebody is experiencing spotting throughout their cycle, we can actually tailor the pill to better um, to better fit the problem. So if somebody's if somebody is spotting in the beginning of their cycle, I would recommend one pill for them. Versus if somebody is experiencing spotting at the end of their cycle, in which case, then we can give a different pill to them uh, that can help with that. Um, We generally see spotting issues most commonly in the ultra-low dose. So those are the pills. Now, let's talk about the patch. The patch works similar to the pill. It has the same thing, estrogen and progesterone, as part of it. There is no great data about the failure rate of the patch, but it is assumed to be very similar to the pill, somewhere between 1% to, to, to 5%. It is higher in obese women. And as a matter of fact, I will not give... The patch to people who are significantly overweight because of the fact that it, it has a reduced efficacy to it. Um, the It does need to be applied weekly. Every week the patch is applied, and then in the next week the patch is taken off and a new patch is placed on. I'm not going to get into the issues as it pertains to NIDA, but there are NIDA concerns as it pertains to the patch, specifically to either wearing the patch when going to mikvah and or the adhesion, the, the glue Uh, which is on the patch and the ability to get the glue off of you um, before going to mikvah. The ring, um, again, works in a very similar fashion to the patch and to the pill. It has both estrogen and and, uh, progesterone. It is placed inside the vagina for three weeks at a time. At the end of the third week, the ring is pulled out. Somebody will get their period And then the following week, they put a new pill in. The failure rate is somewhere between 1% to 9%. Um, For many women, they may have less side effects with the ring than, say, with a pill, because of something known as first-pass digestion, where it avoids the initial medicine from going to the liver. And so for some women, they find that this is better. Also other women find this better too, because it's a more steady state of the medicine as opposed to pills, which each day I take it and it goes down, I take it and it goes down. And so for some women having the ring actually makes it easier for them. Um, And we do see overall that there are less side effects than the pill. You can get discharge and vaginal irritations and cervical irritations from the ring. Um, you can wear it during relations. Most uh, most partners will most most husbands will say that they don't feel the ring. That it's not something that they would feel during during relations. Obviously, it's something as it pertains to going to mikvah. It is possible to take it out before you go to mikvah. It is possible to take it out before you do bedikas if there's a concern. If your rav says that it needs to come out before the bedikah, it is possible to take it out for mikvah as long as it is not out for an extended period of time. Um, So as long as you're just taking it out for that period of time that you're going into the MCPA, that is perfectly fine. Now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the progestin-only methods. Okay, so that was both estrogen and progesterone. These are the progesterone-only methods. And I think the one that people hear most commonly is known as the mini pill. Um, But there's a variety of formulations, which are essentially low dose progesterone pills. The most common time we use these types of contraceptives are for people who are breastfeeding immediately after having a baby, because we generally do not give a combined estrogen and progesterone pill to someone for the first six weeks after delivery. So the mini pill is something which is less likely to interfere with breastfeeding is something which is is safer for someone to take. Um, immediately after delivery. However, the mini pill, the lower dose progesterone pills are not recommended for people as a routine form of birth control. If you are not in that immediate postpartum period, because there is a higher failure rate as you get further out from delivery. The way that it works is it thickens the mucus, like we talked about before, and it prevents the sperm from being able to get into the uterus. There is a small amount of ovulation suppression, um, but it is usually not that high, and it also thins down the endometrium, which makes it harder for sperm to be able to transit through as well. As I mentioned, It can be used by breastfeeding women. It is more important that this pill be taken on time. And that's why it becomes more troublesome for people. Again, like I said, it doesn't have to be 803, but it should be within the hour or so of when you're taking it. Um, There could be increased risks of spotting um, and increased uh, skip menses that could come as a result of it. And that creates all of these concerns for for pregnancy when taking it. Um, But it is a very good method, especially for people in the postpartum period. The Depo-Provera injection is an injection which is given once every three months. Um, It has a very low failure rate of 0.2 to 3%. Um, It works on a variety of mechanisms by preventing ovulation and thickens mucus and all the other things we mentioned before. Um, Usually after about six months, people may develop What's known as amenorrhea, they may actually stop getting their period altogether. However, it creates a tremendous amount of issues for irregular spotting and bleeding, especially in the beginning of it. And I can tell you that uh, that my for my from patients, there are tremendous concerns for the utilization of the Depo Provera injection. Um, and I generally for my from patients, avoid using it in the beginning um, because of the concerns of what exists. Additionally, there could be a very slow return to fertility after taking the Depo-Provera, as much as a year after taking the Depo-Provera could have an impact on the future fertility. Um, So it is something which people do need to keep carefully in mind when you're considering methods um, about the implications. The other concern, which I would say is the largest reason why people choose not to use Depo-Provera is because it has a higher risk of weight gain uh, associated with it, um, and as much as five to 10 pounds per year on the Depo-Provera. So, uh, so I could say that that while it, is, it can be very effective for the right type of person, it is something I urge caution with uh, when using it. Um, the other method that is a progesterone-only method is known as the implant. Um, Nexplanon, and essentially it is a rod which is inserted into the arm. You can see it here in the picture over here. It works the same way as the other methods uh, do. It's good for up to two years. In 15% of patients, they will stop getting their period. However, um, it can be very unpredictable in terms of the irregularity of menses and spotting, and so caution does need to be utilized, again, similar to, as we said, with Depo-Provera in using the implant because of the fact that it can cause those issues. It also requires insertion and removal. As you can see here, there's a small uh, cut that's made in order to put it in and to take it out, Um and that's something that people do need to keep in mind. The failure rate to it is very low. It's less, it's reported as less than a half of a percent. Um, but again, the other concerns that exist related to it, people do need to be prepared that it may create a lot of need to Shilohs um, when using it. Emergency contraception. So emergency contraception does not kill a pregnancy. I get this all the time. People are, they're like, oh, is it, it's gonna kill the, pre-? no, that's not how it works. Um, What it does is it helps to prevent the the normal egg from developing. Um, It is most effective if it's being given before ovulation occurs. After ovulation occurs, it's less effective in terms of being able to prevent anything. And frequently, we won't recommend it to somebody if they are already post ovulation. It does need to be taken as soon as possible after relations. <clears throat> um if somebody needs to utilize it it should be taken typically within 24 to 48 hours at most once you get the further you get away from the timing of relations the less efficacious it is in terms of preventing pregnancy from occurring it can make your menstrual cycle irregular so if you are taking emergency contraception you do need to realize that that next menstrual cycle could be off it is important though, for people to keep in mind that this is not a good method of preventing pregnancy. If you want contraception, you should use a contraceptive method. Obviously things happen. I've had plenty of circumstances where somebody was on vacation and they didn't realize they didn't have their pills with them. And they called me up in a panic saying, I realized I don't have my pills and I didn't take my pills. And emergency contraception is very useful and very effective. Um, it can be very helpful in those circumstances. Um, but just remember though, that it is not so, if you're using it routinely, um, it is not an effective method for routinely prevention. So let's move on now to the IUDs. And there are two primary types of IUDs. There's the copper IUD and the progesterone IUD. The copper IUD is this T-state structure that has copper that wraps around this plastic, and it has strings that come out like this. It's placed inside the uterus. As you could see here, it sits inside the uterus, and the strings hang out through the cervix into the vagina. The strings allow us to be able to easily remove the IUD when it's time for the IUD to come out. The main mechanism for how it works is essentially is a spermicide. It creates a hostile environment in the uterus to the sperm. It creates this inflammatory reaction in the, inside there, so the the woman's body basically is is attacking the sperm and preventing it from coming in. Um, the advantages to the copper ID is there's no hormones attached to it, and for many people who have hormone issues, um, this is a wonderful method. Um, it's good for officially it was good for up to ten years. Actually, they've extended it now. It's good for up to twelve years, uh, so it could be utilized longer term. Um, We generally insert it during people's menstrual cycles. Um, They can have significant spotting and menstrual changes. Usually most of that occurs within the first three to six months of the insertion. But the most common thing that I'll see is that sometimes people will report that their menstrual cycle is a little bit heavier and possibly a little bit longer time for them to be able to get clean. The Mirena IUD, which is one of many now of uh, hormonal IUDs. Uh, It works similarly in terms of the way that it's inserted into the uterus, but as opposed to copper, it has the progesterone hormone, which works like all the other progesterone uh, contraceptives we talked about. It's good for up to five to seven years. The failure rate is extremely low, less than 1%, 0.1%. Um, it can be very helpful for people who have heavy bleeding and it can actually cause in about 20 to 40% of women, they may actually completely stop their periods altogether. However, you could get irregular spotting, especially in the first three to six months of the IUD being placed inside. And that can create a lot of shylas for people as well, uh, for the, for the marine IUD. It can be very beneficial too, for people who have issues pertaining to endometriosis and, and, uh, and um, pain, painful periods uh, are other areas where the Mirena IUD has been shown to be uh, helpful for those patients. So when we put it into perspective to to sum up these methods, um, when we talk about efficacy, how good are these things at preventing pregnancy? Because again, we all have different reasons and there's different advantages and disadvantages to different methods. But let's just talk about the ability to prevent pregnancy. Because in some people, the most important thing is that they may have a medical condition that makes pregnancy dangerous, life-threatening to them. And therefore, obviously the efficacy of that, of preventing pregnancy becomes more critical. Um, So at the top, relates to things relating to sterilization, the IUD and the implant. The next line are things relating to to lactational <clears throat> amenorrhea method, right? The breastfeeding method in the first six months, the depo shot, the pills, the ring and the patch. Um, the next rail uh, of failure relates to the diaphragm, the withdrawal method, and then just the fertility awareness methods and spermicides have the highest rates of failures amongst uh, um, amongst the birth control methods. So I'm just going to spend a few minutes to talk about also now some of the new methods which have come out on the market. Um, And I think it's it's fascinating because we're continuing to see the development of new products. Uh, There is a new vaginal ring, uh, which has recently come on the market. Um, In this ring known as Inerva, um, it is something as opposed to the previous ring, which requires getting a new prescription each month. This is actually a reusable ring for an entire year. It's good for up to 13 cycles. Um, so this is something where somebody doesn't need to replace it um, uh, each uh, um, doesn't need to replace it uh, each month. Uh, it could be helpful, especially depending on your insurance uh, and uh, being able to afford things. And I could talk if uh, we'll discuss. We'll talk about affordability of some of these things afterwards. Um, uh, the biggest problem is that expulsion is fairly common, where it can actually fall out, but it's not a big deal. You can put it back in yourself. Um, and generally, it is not recommended for people who are significantly overweight. The advantage of this is that over the over the ring is that they did not see any changes in the vaginal flora or increased risk of vaginal infections uh, when uh, this was being used. And uh, there's new data showing con- uh, promising results for continuous use, meaning you could put the ring in, set it, and forget it and then you wouldn't get a period for an extended period of time. You don't have to think about taking things out or in or out, and you could leave it there for up to a year. Um, We're not quite there yet, but this is what some of the research is showing. In terms of new pills that are out, uh, there's a new pill out called Nextelis, um, and it's made uh, purely out of uh, drosperinone and Estriol, um, which is is a new formulation. Um, It has a fairly good bleeding profile, um, with 20% with breakthrough bleeding after four cycles. Um, and it's similar to the other birth control pills that are out there. Um, it uses this new type of estrogen. Most of the other birth control pills use um, what's known as estradiol. Um, this, or this uses something called es- uh, estertrol, um, which is a naturally occurring estrogen derived from a plant source. Uh, it has a long half-life um, and so this is a, another method which is out there. Um, Slind is another birth control pill which has come out on the market recently. A lot of women have started using this. Um, in It was approved in 2019. It is a progesterone-only pill. It uses a, a hormone called drosperinone. Um, it is it is very um, effective in terms of helping with the... Uh, um, uh, for people with uh, with uh, higher BMIs, which the previous studies had excluded, and uh, we do see though irregular bleeding um, with uh, with this, and it's something that we do need to keep in mind. Um, but it is something which does improve over time. It is the the advantage to this over the other progesterone pills is that there's a larger window. Like like I was saying before, it's very important that people take their pills. In a regular period of time and at at schedule. Slin gives you a little bit more leeway in terms of being able to um like if I'm a little bit later or if I'm a little bit earlier, if I got up a little bit late on Shabbos and uh, you know, I'm I'm getting up a little later you could still take it and it's going to be less likely to cause a problem for you. Um, it has also an improvement in the bleeding profile than unscheduled bleeding. And has a higher, what's known as amenorrhea rate, lo- uh, which means more people tend to stop getting their period altogether while on SLIND compared to some of the other uh, methods that are out there. There is a new patch also, which has come out, which is called Twirla. Um, it uses a different progesterone than the others on the market. Um, the other thing is the new adhesive is designed not to accumulate around the edge, and it's round and slightly larger, which may make it easier for people for mikvah in terms of taking it off um, and in terms of the way the adhesive on it works. But again, as with all of these things, the concerns relating to irregular uh, bleeding. And then the last thing is uh, the is a newer class of, of them, which is known as the pH modulator. Um, Fexy is the is the one that is in this class. Fexy is essentially uh, like this um, gel, which is injected inserted into the vagina. It can be used up to one hour prior to relations, uh, and it works by changing the pH that makes it <laughs> not conducive for the for the semen, um, and it can immobilize and kill the the sperm. Uh, it could be used uh, with other methods as well. Um, and the efficacy is reported at around 93% with perfect use, about 86% though, with typical use. So it has about a, a 15% failure rate um, to the use of uh, FEXI. So again, if if people are looking for um, absolute at a higher, higher rates of, of insurance of that that you're not going to get pregnant. You know, this falls within those classifications at the bottom there of other spermicides, which may also have similar similar issues. And then lastly, um, as it relates to the, to the um, fertility awareness methods, um, there's been a whole slew of these new digital apps that have come out. Um, there's actually one which has been approved by the FDA called Natural Cycles. It uses an algorithm that uses body temperature and menstrual cycle data to determine when fertile times would be. Um, the challenge with it is it takes time for it to collect the data on you. So it will always show in the beginning that it's not good um, until it learns your cycle. There's also something known as the Ura ring. I don't know if people are familiar with this. It's a ring that people wear that uh, has biometric um, uh, measurements to it. It can measure temperature and pulse and various other things. So it can integrate with that as well. <laughs> and it could be used both for helping the prevent pregnancy or to plan pregnancy um and again, uh in their studies they found 92 percent efficacy in typical use, although as it got uh, um, out there on the market in the non-control studies, there was a large backlash on social media because of a large number of unwanted and unplanned pregnancies that happened when people were using it. but this is another thing which is out there. So I am going to stop over here. There's a bunch of other things that I can talk about in terms of upcoming and new developments that are happening, but I think that that I've Spent more than enough time going over going over everything here. Um, and I hope that this is helpful. Um, I hope that this is useful for people to get an idea. Remember, this does not supplement for people's conversations with their physicians to understand the methods because everybody is unique and everybody has unique concerns and potential risks associated. Birth control, while it is something which is so frequently and commonly used, we do need to respect the fact that there are risks from it. And my tale of caution that I always give to people is that I know people who have unfortunately had serious and, and fatal events that have happened relating to the use of birth control um, because they inappropriately were using certain types of birth control. So we do need to make sure that we're using it appropriately, both from a medical perspective and a halachic perspective. Um, and responsibly uh, doing this is, is key. Um, I, I very much encourage people to engage in that conversation with your with your rabbi, um, with your doctor, and like I said from the beginning, don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call the rabbi from the doctor's office when you're there, um, so that there is a lack of miscommunication and any ability for everybody to talk freely. Um, again, I hope that this was helpful for everyone, uh, and I hope that uh, that that this will be uh, useful for to to anybody who needs who needs to deal with these types of issues
0: thank thank you um, dr chadnoff i have a bunch of questions for you so um i'll start with mine and mrs rosa has questions as well and um, um, we'll go from there. So first of all, you know, I, you know, you know, put a lot of the new things at the end. And I'm wondering, oh, this is one type of barrier method. This is one type of patch. Um, so I guess I'm curious as to do you see them as different than the different categories, or are they just new things that came at the end? Do You want us to focus on it separately? And I guess I'm gonna build on my question. I know usually I should just stop, pause, but another question I had that's related to this is that you know, like you had mentioned, there's 120 different formulations of the combination pill so that's why most people most you know just the general consumer will come into the doctor's office and the doctor typically has two three four that they recommend and I what's commonly heard and I guess that's my question for you is that you know someone says oh well the doctor just recommends whoever recently gave him samples or whatever is the newest stuff on the market so how do you as a doctor that for us as a consumer to know which of the 120 funny options are you giving us or when you are directing the consumer and you have all these different options and you know it's a from woman who wants the most luckily acceptable one how do you choose why how are you deciding what the person should have
2: so i think that there's a variety of considerations that i utilize in trying to figure out what is the best method a lot of it can do with other symptoms that somebody may have so it could relate to where how their menstrual cycles are are they experiencing pain with their periods Um, Do they have other things or other considerations? Have they tried things in the past that haven't worked properly for them? Um, All of these things are different considerations that we use in determining which pill is the best for uh, an individual. Now, granted, there's no good way to know where to start, right? We start with whatever pill we start with, but it is important to understand that just because we started with one pill doesn't mean that that is the end-all be-all for that patient. Like I said, there may be a particular concern that we're trying to address. This person may have acne and they want something to help with the acne. So we might choose one pill that has a better profile for improving acne. Someone else may have more pain with their periods and we may choose something that's more um, effective for choosing pain. Like I said, people may have spotting and it may be at the beginning of the cycle or the end of the cycle or the mid cycle. And different formulations can better target those various different conditions. So things can be personalized of those formulations based on what's going on. But for the vast majority of women who have no problems and are just starting on a pill, you could pretty much start on any one of them. The biggest consideration that I think that most people need to decide when they're starting a pill is are they looking to take it continuously or are they looking to get a period every month?
0: Okay. And all the new ones that you mentioned towards the end, would you consider them as a new one from different categories or would you say, or would you say that, no, these are new things that have new considerations. You know, we have a, we have a partner, um, podcast to this, right. we put the halakhic implications where we go through the barrier methods, the hormonal methods, the patch, et cetera. And I'm curious, I'm wondering whether these new ones are become new considerations or are they simply, uh, examples of the different types.
2: Well, they they are examples of the other types. They are newer ones. They have each one of them has certain unique features to them, and so those unique features obviously are are important in terms of the consideration. Um, But ultimately, um, they are within the larger classes that exist there. Fexi is a slightly different. It is essentially like the spermicides. Um, but it works through a different mechanism. The other spermicides typically work through nanoxyl-9. This works through pH changes, and that can have implications for uh, irritations in the vagina and things of that nature. So there are there are definitely differentials as it exists with some of the new methods. Again, the purpose of many of these new methods was to come up with a solution to a problem that exists with the current methods that we have out there now.
0: Okay, and one thing you had mentioned about the Fexy, because I wasn't clear from your slides, is that you said it could be used with other methods, so it could be used just like contraceptive gel can be used in combination with the diaphragm or other options.
2: All right, let, me, let me correct that. It's not okay. intended to be used with the diaphragm. Um, right now, the only method that has been officially approved for use with the diaphragm is nanoxyl 9. Um, okay. So we do not recommend using fexi with the diaphragm at this time. Um maybe at some point we'll identify that it is useful to be used at the same time, but right now it is not. Uh, so when you
0: said that it could be used in conjunction with other methods, what 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 did you what did you mean by that? Uh,
2: so FEXI could be used. So for example, sometimes um I get frequently patients who are very concerned, um, you know, especially when they're initiating a new birth control method, um, that they may want to have backup. Um, And that would be an appropriate place uh, where, or if somebody who's using lactational amenorrhea method who wants additional backup, those are areas where it would be beneficial.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Schnuff. Mrs. Reza, I believe you have questions as well. If you can go ahead and unmute yourself.
3: Okay. So they're more like small, like little questions. So I'll go through them as they came up. So we were talking about breastfeeding, right? As soon as you start giving solids, you know, it's, it's less effective as a contraceptive method. Is that only for solids? What about formula?
2: Even that includes formula because the whole reason why birth, by it works as a birth control method is the suckling from the baby. And that causes the release of hormones. The more the baby is given additional secondary food, the less suckling that takes place, the less that hormone impacts and therefore the higher the risk of- um, of
3: Yes, so, uh, like, I guess pumping breast milk would also make it less effective if the baby's not. No, no, no.
2: Pumping it, pumping it does work.
3: So it's not the sucking; it's the release of the milk.
2: It's well, pumping simulates sucking. It's mm-hmm. the, the same. That's how come the, the milk comes out. It works under the same mechanism.
0: Okay. You had mentioned. I mean, I'm again. I'm going to remind anyone. Anyone who wants to see it visually, can go to slash media You had mm-hmm. mentioned how, let's say, the breastfeeding um, is you know pretty effective. It was only had one to three percent failure rate for the first six months if exclusively breastfeeding. Yes. But then you had mentioned that the mini pill is only given for the first six weeks. Why would someone need a no, pill at all the first six no, weeks? No, no, no no, six no, no. Six it's,
2: it's given within, we, start it with it, we can start it in the first six okay, weeks. So I'm glad
0: week. I asked that because I heard first six weeks and my question was,
3: why would we be giving anything at all for six weeks? It's not even necessary. Okay. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear that. Okay. <laughs> and the next question is we're talking about the fertility awareness method. A lot of people nowadays double up with the diaphragm, meaning when they know those five to seven days where they know, you know, if they're studying their mucus um, and they're very internal, you know, if the mucus is the most effective. You get to know your body. And five to seven days before, they'll use the diaphragm. Those, that window, they'll use the diaphragm. You don't have any statistics on the effectiveness of that. I was of, watching the slides.
2: Of what? Of using Doubling
3: the diaphragm the
2: with the fertility awareness method? Correct well it will only increase the efficacy of it I, I can tell you because again the diaphragm by itself has its efficacy and if you're avoiding right if you're avoiding relations even more um then obviously that will continue to improve the efficacy of what you're dealing with so so yes if if that's the if that's the objective and the goal you know then then for sure what is the actual number has there been a study combining those two no there has never been a, a study specifically looking at it. There probably will never be a study to look at that um, just because of the raw numbers of people needed to really determine that. Um, it's unlikely that that, that that research will come out, but we do know that it's a belt and suspenders approach. Um, you know, if you, if you got both on, then it's less likely that something's gonna fall down.
3: So uh, I have another two questions about the um, diaphragm. Is it true that it can be less effective if you have more vaginal deliveries or is it It doesn't matter how many babies you delivered vaginally, it has the same effectiveness. So we, it something that goes around a uh, rumor or whatever.
2: We fit the diaphragm specifically to adjust to the size of the vagina. The concern I think that people have is that if I've had lots of deliveries that The vagina is either stretched in some fashion that would make it so that it doesn't give me the right proper fit, but it needs to be properly fitted in the first place. Now, where the diaphragm may not fit well could be in somebody who may have prolapse where everything is kind of falling out. And if everything is kind of falling out, that could be a concern that could ultimately create an issue for the diaphragm. But that would be something that would be identified typically during the fitting itself. But the raw number of babies you have is not is not in any way impact. It's just about the fitting.
0: You, uh, you indicated, uh, sorry, I'm going to ask a question. if, Ms. Marz, if This is, um, you know, copies you as well. I have a question. But uh, you had mentioned how there's a one size fits all uh, type. I've heard that it's a misnomer. There isn't really such a thing. I've also encountered, and I guess this is for the larger audience, when patients find themselves in areas where they're not dealing with you know, large firm population or uh, OBGYN that is familiar with the firm population. They tend to shy away from diaphragms. They don't like it, maybe because insurance doesn't cover enough, and we didn't discuss financials. Maybe we'll do that in a moment. So my question to you is, as a provider, do you feel that the one-size-fits-all is something that a provider should even consider? Would you say that all OBGYNs are equally qualified to fit for a diaphragm if that's a woman's choice? Do you have anything to say on, on in that regard? I mean, especially, you know, Mr. Merozov had brought up, you know, uh, someone, a multi-pair, someone who's had many children, so.
2: Not everybody is the same when it comes to doctors and everybody has different levels of comfort based on where they trained and the the types of patient populations that they deal with. Um, Access to the diaphragm was reduced for a while and the availability to it was decreased, which is where that one-size-fits-all diaphragm came onto the market. Um, My general... Uh, philosophy is that while the diaphragm could be very good for people who really need it, um, it's usually not something that I that I highly recommend for, for patients, um, primarily because of the fact that there's a lot of, what I have identified in, in patients is a lot of issues pertaining to irritations with the use of it um, and creating lots of issues as it pertains to bleeding. I think that the biggest advantage to it is the opportunity to have a non-hormonal method. Which I think is is a tremendous advantage um, as methods go, and especially for halakhically permissible methods. And again, I'm not saying that the diaphragm is halakhically permissible. Ask your rav. But uh, but in general, most I, in my experience, it's been that many rabbinim will be mati or the use of a diaphragm. Um, but I do find that uh, it does create it does create a lot of issues for many women. Um, and especially if you have certain predispositions for certain conditions such as urinary tract infections and so on.
3: Thank you. Uh, by the way, the kaya, the one size fits all, they now make like a extra large. like so like I guess they got a little smarter, they won't. Whatever. But you're saying now it's more av- available. The diaphragms are coming back in style. They're more available.
2: Well, they, they are they are available. The, again, the challenge has been that, again, the vast majority of, of docs, the vast majority of patients weren't looking for diaphragms. As the pills became much more prevalent, um, less and less women were seeking the diaphragm. And so as less and less people sought the, out the diaphragm, the production of it went down, and therefore it created a gap in terms of, of access and availability.
0: But that, did you think it's better
3: now? Has that changed?
2: I, I find that it is better now that you can get it easier than it used to be.
3: And doctors are trained to do proper fitting. You don't have to go to a, special spe- a specialist to fit a diaphragm.
2: You you shouldn't, but I will tell you that many doctors are not adequately trained in how to do
3: it. How would one know? i to ask. Do you, do you fit that diaphragm's well? No, no, I don't. Yeah, okay, whatever.
2: Well, you could ask whether or not, listen, you could ask whether they, listen, many doctors don't even have a fitting tray, which means that they can't fit the diaphragm. uh uh-huh.
3: so, okay, do, I, do you have a fitting tray? Right. Okay, and I have another question. There are different way, uh, different type of spermicides. You know, there's the gel and the, and the syringe, and there's the, the you know, the, this and the, that. Is there any one that's more effective than the other? I think I missed it on the slide, or maybe they're all the same, equally effective.
2: They're all equally effective in terms of the the uh formulations. They're all very similar.
3: Okay, you also mentioned that if you miss the pill, right? So loses the effectiveness of it how many pills do you have to miss in order for it to be non-effective like if you missed one or you missed two like it depends on the package like it's like you miss. well it depends the-
2: on it depends on the type of pill it depends on how when you say when we say missed missed can mean a lot of things miss can be i didn't take it i was supposed to take it in the morning and i took it at night miss could be i missed an entire day miss could be i missed an entire two or three days okay. um as a, as a general rule we recommend that people as soon as you remember it, you take it and then go back to your regular schedule that you were before. But just keep in mind the fact that there could be a decrease in efficacy to the pill. The percentage decrease in efficacy, I'm not going to quote because nobody can tell you definitively what that number is.
3: I want to say what about the opposite? I know there's women after birth. They, they want to get to the mikvah, right? So when do they start the mini pill? They're afraid if I start the mini pill, I'll start spotting. Maybe I should first get to the mikvah, then do the mini pill. How many days of the mini pill, if you're breastfeeding? Does it take to actually be effective enough that they use a backup, you know, backup spermicide that they could, you know, have relations, or like you don't want to say this publicly? It's also fine. That's something that people I, ask.
2: Again, it's it's very conditional. There's a lot of factors at play, so I don't want to I don't want to, I don't want to give you a definitive number because there's a lot of factors that are that are at play as it pertains to that.
0: Okay, I'm so- going to go back to the, the question right beforehand where you had said, you know, if someone misses a day or misses a half hour or misses a half a day, and they're supposed to take it as soon as they remember, and then there might be a drop in the, effic- the efficacy, do they have to go back to their provider or is there some sort of general rule of thumb for how long they need to use a backup method?
2: Um, well, generally, if you want to be safe, I would recommend using a backup method until your next period.
3: Oh, wow. Okay. So, wow, that's a long time. Okay, I know in Europe there's something like an IUB,
2: an IUB,
3: like balls or something, not just oh,
2: <laughs> yeah. There's I-U-B. so it's actually I didn't include that in the presentation. It's things that are coming down the pike. I have in my presentation a variety. There's a whole slew of different things which are coming. There's a lot of new IUD designs which are being uh which are being developed right now.
3: So my, I, I'll tell you the question is a little different. There's you know it used to be if you want to a non-hormonal IUD, I mean, there's the uh, Mirena, et cetera, for the hormonal, the non-hormonal, no hormones. Now there's a huge, you know, amount of people are, I don't know if it's hearsay, people are allergic to the copper. You shouldn't have so much copper in your body. It has um, side effects. As a doctor, I mean, from the medical perspective, what do you say? And is there something that's both non-hormonal and non-copper that exists?
2: So there there currently is nothing you're talking about from an IUD perspective, correct? There is; those are the two primary methods which are available today. There is some; there has been some investigation to alternative methods. Nothing which is approved as of now, but there are certain things which are in the pipeline that are under development at the moment.
3: But did you hear in your office about this copper? This copper, like allergy to copper or causes mood swings, or who knows what?
2: So, so there anybody can have a reaction to any any metal. Um, it is possible. I mean, there are people who have an actual disease called Wilson's disease, where there's an excess copper buildup in the body. It's a rare disease, although it does happen. Um, it, it's less likely that somebody is going to have, you know, a true quote unquote copper allergy per se, although it does, it does exist, where people could be allergic to the medicine and therefore could have certain reactions as a result to the introduction of of copper you know what i always tell people is there's nothing that doesn't have a side effect drinking water can have a side effect right the water you can choke on water you can have water that's contaminated um you know if we put a label on our water that comes from the tap it'd probably be pretty long there's always risk factors to everything that's out there um And everything we do is a bit of a risk-benefit analysis, right? We're constantly deciding, you know, if I cross the street, I can get, God forbid, hit by a car, right? But I do things to try to minimize the risk that could exist, right? I cross during the traffic light, right? I grow, you know, but I'm probably not going to try to run across the Belt Parkway. So it's kind of that, that same idea. People need to recognize the fact that there is, you know, people always ask me for 100%. I'm I'm mere I'm a mere mortal. I I we no no one can ever tell somebody 100% anything. Um but what we can say are things that are more likely and less likely. The copper IUDs have been utilized for 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 now, you know, decades without where the vast majority of people tolerate them fine. Are there individuals who reject them whose bodies have problems? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Do I think that that number has increased in recent years from where it's been before? No, I don't. Um, I just think that we, you know, we're in a, we're in a communication error now where people can hear more easily about things than they used to hear about it before. Um, So I I have a
0: question about the copper. I've heard about this from a different medical provider. That medical provider came from their religion perspective, which was not Jewish perspective, where they felt that the copper IUD was a like a spermicide and they said they don't see how they they were wondering and asking me which i told them it's beyond you know my knowledge about why that would be considered okay within judaism to use a copper iud that doesn't affect a spermicide
2: well again as a general rule again i'm not i'm not going to give the halakhic discourse but i'll just say quickly that most rabbinim tend to to find spermicides to be less problematic it's 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 creating physical barrier and again, I don't, I don't want to get into the halachic. No, I'm just re- wondering
0: whether the copper is considered like is copper a first line um, recommendation over Morena is copper. There's no
2: such thing as first line of one versus the other. Okay, they are, so- they are both. It all depends on the individualization to what the patient is looking for. If somebody calls me, they have menstrual issues and concerns and they're concerned about pain with periods, or they want to try to not get a period frequently then I would recommend starting with the hormonal one. If somebody says to me, you know what, every time I take any types of hormonal pills or when I've tried six different birth control pills and the ring and the patch and the this and that, and every single one causes my moods to fluctuate and all these, then I would say, yeah, that's somebody who you start on on the copper IUD. Um, And then the rest is up to personal preference. You know, a lot of it is what people want.
3: There's also how long you're on birth control also. If you want to start off with the IUD and staining could go on. Maybe I'll ask Dr. Chodnop, my last question. How long is staining common um, upon, you know, the insertion of the IUD? And then when do they reach out to their... And again, you're a firm doctor. You will tell your patients when to come back. We have a very audience of women all over the world, and they may not even know what's normal or not normal when reach out to their doctor, et cetera. So that's a bit of last information about staining, on the IUDs, but I do want to say that how long you're going to be on birth control is definitely an important part of this discussion. What choices are you going to make? Sometimes you want to stick it out, you know, a, maybe it'll take three months or six months, whatever of staining, but afterwards the next 10 years you know, or whatever, how many years you'll be okay. So that's why the doctor kept repeating over and over again. And the same thing with the rug, like every situation is so individual, like people are marketing one type. You know, this is the only one that you should have and everything else, you know, some women need to take hormones and some women cannot take hormones or whatever, or don't want to, whatever. It's so individualized. And therefore the this is just for information. It's not to market one. If you notice, and I thank you for that so much, Dr. Chudnov, how you were like so neutral about every method, even like halakhically neutral, so to speak, like you're not <laughs> saying what's that- like- Not
2: halakhically neutral, but I am- <laughs> But you know what i am like
3: to say? Like everything that's available, out there and not like uh, trying to make whatever you need individualized to your personal thing. So my last question, doctor, was about because this is an audience all over the place, we don't know what their doc. you know, halachic staining is very different than medical staining. A regular doctor will say, okay, she, she, they won't even realize she's trying to get to the mikveh and make dicas They may not even like be attuned to that minimal type of bleeding and say, ah, but for, uh, for a woman, that's like horrendous. So what would you suggest as far as knowledge to take to your doctor? Or if you don't have a doctor that will give you this knowledge about how much staining to tolerate after an IUD? So again,
2: staining is very common after insertion of an IUD, irrespective of the type, both the copper and the Mirena IUD. As a general rule, I believe that there's, there's very little that could be done within the first month of insertion of the moraine IUD. I have been doing some studies now about giving additional medications at the time of insertion to see if that helped. My results are not good enough yet to even discuss in a public way, but as of now, I don't have the solution just yet. Um, there are some new ones that are being developed that may be more helpful. Um, but as a general rule, I would tell people you got to give it at least a month but after a month, obviously, now we're starting to get into serious time issues as it pertains, especially if you're not getting to mikvah. Look, if you're getting, remember, and as you as you correctly pointed out, there's a difference between halachic problems versus medical problems. Medi- Staining after the IUD, no doctor would ever blink twice about from a medical perspective, but obviously the halachic and social concerns as a result of that are significant. So, I think that if you that most doctors will try to reinforce for people, you got to give it at least a month, six weeks before we start to really try to push things and see if there's something we could do to improve it. And I think that people need to give it that amount of time when things are inserted to to see how things are landing. It could take up to three months to definitively see where things are, are going to land. And I would tell people that that you have to be prepared for that. You have to be prepared that it could take up to three months. But after about six to seven weeks, it is totally appropriate to give the doctor a call and say, hey, listen, I'm still spotting. I'm still staining. I don't know what's going on over here. I personally bring my patients back to see me at between six to eight weeks so that I'm able to check and make sure that everything is okay. Um, And that if there are issues that we could address it at that time. it is important to also explain to the physician though that this is an issue for I me mean, some physicians are a little bit more empathetic and some are less empathetic to the to the issue because again it is something which is unique um to judaism and so not every physician is, is it, fully appreciates the implications and impact that this that this does have but i would say i would say as a as a rule of thumb between 6 to 8 weeks is a reasonable time to to reach back out to the doctor and say hey this is i got to do something about this um and there are things that could be done
3: wow amazing i just want to say when when people are speaking to their doctor about choices i'm sure it also makes a difference we didn't discuss this about age you know if you're going to menopause it will affect choices over if you're you know so all these things, I'm sure the doctor will interview somebody properly. I don't think we have to mention over here every medical situation.
2: There, it's impossible for us to go through. Well, not impossible. It's impossible in the time frame we have
4: right.
2: to be able to go through all of the permutations that exist as it pertains right. to age and as it pertains to fertility and as it pertains to, to medical issues and as it pertains to bleeding issues. There are so many factors that we take into account when we're coming up with what is best for each patient. Um, The financial concerns, as I mentioned also, that's another big issue. And again, I can talk for for 20, 30 minutes about financial concerns as it pertains to contraception.
0: Well, if you want to say it in like a minute or two, what would be some of the financial concerns? (laughs) If we we want to bring it up as a completeness, but not 20 minutes worth, you know, or like you said, age, like if someone is not- I
2: I, I, honestly, we could could talk for, I, I really, I don't want us to- we could talk forever about this stuff. <clears throat> the one thing I'll say about, about cost is from a cost-effective perspective, um, an IUD, if it's planned to be less used less than a year, is probably not cost-effective. If it's going to be used more than a year, it's probably a very cost-effective method. And it is definitely worthwhile to consider if somebody is on a birth control pill, being on a continuous pill, um, and then being able to order multiple uh, months at a time because of the the cost of the uh um uh for the refills every time you refill the the prescription the the costs that are associated with it there are various other tips and techniques that could be used in order to try to help with with you know with costs and stuff like that but it's it's a little bit too far for us to get into now
0: okay so thank you Dr. Chadnor for your time I appreciate it and um the wider global audience appreci- appreciates it. In conclusion, I'll just ask, you know, we ran, we were out of, out of time. And as you said, there's so many permutations Or people do need to have the individual consultation with their medical provider. So if someone is somewhere where they feel like, you know, they're, their Rav is concerned that their provider is not fully aware of the ramifications. What you had mentioned in the beginning, the phone number of your of your department, or do they do consults for someone even if that you're not going to be their long term provider because they don't live in New York City?
2: Yes, it, we could do we could do both in person if somebody happens to be in the area, and we also do telehealth consults as well.
0: But telehealth consults even for someone out of New York State? That was the uh, question.
2: It it depends on the cert depends on the circumstances but yes, we can usually we can usually do it depending on the state that they're coming from or where they're coming from. Um, you know and worst case scenario it, it wouldn't be covered by insurance. That would be the way it, what we can o- we can always do a consult.
0: All right thank you and um, have a great day everybody.
1: Remember to truly grasp the essence of this topic, we encourage you to follow the entire series. Stay tuned for the final episode, where we will hear a follow-up to The Medical Perspective with Rabbi Kasimov.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's recording. Please take a moment to leave a rating or a review to help others find the podcast. We welcome you to support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. For feedback, please email podcast at mikvah.org. Have a wonderful day.